Welcome to The Hidden Truth, Breaking the Silence. I'm your host, Jonathan McLernan. Each episode, we explore stories of individuals and how they've been affected by being a part of a secretive Christian fellowship. The stories shared here may include speaking about sensitive topics suited for a mature audience. Dysfunction happens when doctrine meets dogma and silence is paramount. So let's pull back the veil on today's episode of The Hidden Truth. All right. Welcome to the show. It seems funny, given the conversation that we're going to have, for me to say that I'm excited for today's conversation, because we're going to talk about some tough stuff today. So maybe call this your trigger warning. We might talk about some difficult topics here. But I am excited because there's been such fantastic work done to kind of move forward or try to make some headway within the fellowship that I'm a part of when it comes to sexual abuse and child sexual abuse. And spearheading the effort is Cynthia Lyles, a private investigator. And I don't I don't want to say this fell into your lap because I don't know how it ended up in your lap, but I'm excited to kind of hear how you ended up in this position and, and the work that you're doing, not just yourself as an investigator, but uh, with your organization, um, Advocates for the Truth as well. So welcome to the show, Cynthia. It is a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Jonathan. Happy to be here. Yeah. So I think maybe the first question that is often on people's minds, like I, I thought when I first heard the term like private investigator or PI, my mind went back to my childhood. Um, Dick Tracy, I think you might be <laughs> you might be old enough to remember the, uh, the, the uh, cartoon detective. And so we hear like investigator detective, maybe we have an idea of how it's been glamorized in the media or this is what an investigator detective looks like. But oftentimes, same thing with like legal shows what it really looks like in real practice versus how media portrays it's probably a little bit different, but what really does a private investigator do? Gathers information, document interviews, really just gathering evidence to support Mm -hmm. a case. Now, do you have a magnifying glass or a pipe? I do not. I do wear a trench coat sometimes, but not with a fedora. Right, right. Uh, probably related to the weather because you're out on the West Coast. Is that right? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So your your efforts are really about gathering information. Now, I imagine there's probably some legalities around like how you go about doing this. You don't just necessarily show up like knock on someone's door saying, can I ask you some questions? Um, what does the information gathering process kind of look like for you? Well, I do do that, actually. Okay. I, huh. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I do knock on doors and interview people. Yeah. So, and and lots of phone calls, lots of document retrieval, uh, historical documents. Uh, Of course, I work on some fairly old sex abuse cases. (laughs) So gathering historical documents, uh, libraries are a great resource. Of course, the internet now has a ton of stuff. So, so the jobs changed a bit, but right. Yeah. But still there's an element of it that is just like human to human interaction and I, I got to ask, I'm kind of curious how you would be received. So you go and you, you, you knock on someone's door and how do you introduce yourself and how receptive or not receptive are people when they hear who you are and what it is you're doing? It, it depends. It depends. So sometimes I'm not very well received and sometimes people invite you on in and, and they're ready to talk. But a lot of times people do not want to talk to me. Mm-hmm. So now I think there maybe is a maybe a misunderstanding like like you are not law enforcement this hence the no. term private um investigator see so you but there are certain you're bound by certain legal obligations within your profession and it isn't just like anybody who can like put on a fedora and a trench coat and say i'm a private investigator 
How does somebody become a private investigator? Yeah, so I was, I've, I've worked in law firms since 1982. So I've worked in the mm -hmm. legal field for a very long time. Um, in the 90s, I kind of moved into more of a, a investigative paralegal role. So I was really uh, doing a lot of what I do now, uh, finding witnesses, interviewing them, um, client intake, uh, where you you interview a client uh, right when they're coming into the firm, kind of determine if they have a good case to move forward or not. So mm -hmm. a lot of witness interviews. And then um, in 2009, an attorney I was working for, they were working on the on a huge Boy Scout case mm -hmm. uh, here in the Northwest. And uh, she said, you really should get your private investigator's license. And I, I don't even think I answered her. I was like, oh, okay. And I didn't even know what that looked like. Right. And, right, and then right. about a year later, she said, I'm really serious. You should really get your private investigator's license. I said, I don't even know what that would entail. And she said, well, go figure it out. So I, I did, I checked it out and, and I ended up having all of the qualifications because of my background. I had all the hours mm -hmm. I needed already. Uh, I had everything. I just needed letters of recommendation, basically, from different attorneys that I worked for. So I uh, applied for my license, got it. And ever since, I've been a licensed private investigator. Still working right. for a okay. Yeah. Right. So, and, and so, but now you are, rather than necessarily working under one specific firm, you're, are you like contracted to, to law firms and you're your own independent business or... Yeah. And even then I was working for different law firms. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all right. So I imagine like this, this work sometimes can be quite uh, tedious uh, sometimes, or maybe a lot of the time draining. Uh, what, what sort of like motivates you to keep moving forward with the work that you're doing? Well, I stay really pissed off usually because I mostly work <laughs> on sex abuse cases. Right. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. And that, that kind of leads into like, how does, like, how do you sort of land in that arena? Like this, this is a particularly loaded arena. And, and as we may talk mm -hmm. about, like institutional abuse is rampant and it's of course getting much more exposure than ever, like we ever previously thought about, but mm -hmm. how, how do you end up landing on this as this is my particular field of investigation or specialization? Um, I don't, I don't really know. I mean, I got involved in the, in Boy Scout and church cases really early on uh, when these became a thing and I, I enjoy them. They don't mm -hmm. bother me like they do some people. Some people just can't work on cases like these and they've never really bothered mm -hmm. me. You're really working for, uh, you're helping survivors always, right? When you're working mm -hmm. on a case, you are helping somebody. Uh, with their trauma and holding somebody accountable, the, the institution that was responsible. So mm -hmm. it's, yeah, it's edifying. Yeah. I think that's a really, a really good way of putting it because people hear, well, you enjoy this, what's enjoyable about it, but it is this idea of like fighting for justice and not only that, but fighting for justice for like the most vulnerable among us in societies who, where institutions have actually like taken advantage of people in these settings and, and situations. Now, 
of course, inevitably, it's going to enter into the conversation that um, the, the fellowship that I'm currently a part of until they maybe kick me out for doing these <laughs> interviews. But what uh, we know is the two by twos or insiders refer to it as the truth. Um, somehow this ha has come across your desk as well. And y you've been tasked with uh, uncovering or investigating abuse and child sexual abuse in particular within this institution as well. If we zoom out just a little bit, what is your original connection to this fellowship? Oh, I grew up in it. Um, right. My grandparents okay. uh, uh, profess, I think, in the maybe the 1930s. And then okay. both my parents were raised in it and I was raised in it as well. <laughs> and, and where were you raised? Montana. Okay. So just south of the, the Alberta border. Um, yes. And Montana is a, like, it's a big state in terms of area, but as in terms of population, it feels like a small town. If that's, I don't know if that's an accurate way of putting it, but true. Yeah. Um, would you have described your parents as like strict or were they more liberal sort of adherence to the sort of unwritten tenets of this faith as we, as we realize that there are many of them, even though we claim to not have many rules? Right. Yeah. I, I would say they were strict. They had non-conforming yep. children, but yes. We had, a, we had a strict household. Yeah. Okay. And, and uh, what do you remember kind of like about the fellowship and maybe about the workers as a kid and what, and then ultimately how did that lead you to deciding that you didn't want to be a part of this fellowship? Um, well, the workers were really revered. We had workers in our house a lot. We had Sunday morning meeting uh, the entire time I was growing up and so lots of workers in our home and um, we treated them like royalty. I mean, there's still plenty of workers that I talk to and give them a big hug when I see them and consider them friends. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we, the workers were really revered. Mm -hmm. And this is really interesting because you mentioned some of them, you still have a, a good, like a good relationship with, you can encounter mm -hmm. them and it's not considered hostile, but, oh yeah, um, but as you've like dug into this, there's definitely been some resistance and some hostility and you're viewed as like the enemy or someone who's trying to destroy this or take this down. And, you know, as far as I can tell, this isn't the case. You, your goal is not to destroy this fellowship, but it is to bring perpetrators to justice. But, um, what so did you did you yourself ever profess or were you part of this fellowship and I did. or did you just yeah yeah uh, and what what sort of a few times you okay okay <laughs> yeah yeah I ultimately I mean I always had trouble conforming honestly uh, I mm -hmm. think anybody that knew me um, back in the day would agree with that statement and ultimately I mean there were lots of things I had questions about even as a kid that just didn't add up to me. So I struggled with that. And then ultimately it just, uh, I never felt like I was going to be good enough. So that was depressing. Yeah. Um, and so then when I ultimately left for good, um, I just started getting more peace around that. Um, so mm -hmm. that's why I left, but I am very big on, everybody's relationship with God is a very personal thing. It's a personal mm -hmm. journey. Um, and, and I'm not here to tell anybody how to worship. Right. So. Yeah, absolutely. So, and, and 
you know, we think like, how is this relevant to the work that you're doing? But it actually, it gives you a degree of insight. Like, let's just say an investigator was was looking into this, but had never been a part of it. They don't really sort of understand. It, it's like reading about something in a book versus a lived experience. And you have a degree of lived experience and still have family connections who are a part of and within this fellowship. And so you you have a much more intimate understanding of kind of how this this works. I'm curious, did you ever have any interactions before you were openly, I guess, like investigating this? Did you ever have any interactions with workers that at first seemed like questionable or, or like made you raise your eyebrows and go, hey, yeah. something felt a bit off here? Never. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. it seems like a lot of this like was really like hidden away I mean, that's why, why I'm calling this like the, the hidden truth. Like a lot of this was covered up exceptionally well. And I feel like when when something like an institution heavily leans on form and appearance and like rituals and this is what we do and this is how we do it, that like a perpetrator can really hide very well in, a, in like sort of a strong institutional uh, structure like that. Um, what was the first sort of inkling that you had? Hey, something something's off with this fellowship and kind of what was your first reaction to it? Well, you know, Sherry's case first came across my desk in 2010. Okay. Um, an attorney reached out to me and uh, Sherry had written a letter that ended up on the internet. And, and I actually thought Sherry, I didn't know Sherry. I thought she must be mm -hmm. consulting with lawyers, but anyhow, a lawyer reached out to me and, and said, Hey, I think this is the church you grew up in. This is a lawyer I've worked okay. with since 1994. So she knew me pretty okay. well. So this is in 2010. Right, right. And she said, I, hey, I think this is the church you grew up in. And and I read Cherry's letter. I said, oh, yeah, it definitely is. And there were some attorneys looking at the case or looking to contact Sherry, maybe. I don't know. And so they were wondering more about the church, if anybody had ever heard of this. And so I talked to those attorneys and said, hey, there's no institution to sue. You're You're wasting your time even looking at this. So that, that was a dead end. And I actually have some feelings uh, myself about, you know, I didn't reach out to Sherry then, um, which I feel mm -hmm. really bad about now because maybe we, maybe we could have gotten something done even back in 2010. I was just business as usual, which is how we got here, right? People operating right, business yeah. as usual. Yeah. Uh, that, that was really not very empathetic of me to not reach out to somebody from my church, um, mm -hmm. working on the cases that I worked on. So I feel badly about that. But then last year, uh, that same attorney reached out to me I said, and said, it was kind of the similar situation. He said, Hey, I think this is the church you grew up in. There was no letter involved, um, this time, uh, and, so I reached out to the attorney that was working with Sherry and Lauren, or I was put in touch with him and told him the same thing, no institution to mm -hmm. sue. And he said, yep. that's, that's impossible. I, we've got to find a way. And so we shopped Sherry, especially Sherry's case, because there was an open mm -hmm. statute of limitations for civil cases in California that closed at the end of last year. And so we shopped it to, uh, probably about 30 of the best child sex abuse case, uh, attorneys and nobody would take it because there was no institution <laughs> to sue and uh, you'd be chasing the money. Even if, if there was, you'd be chasing the money. So sure, it was for just a very long time. prohibitive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
And and uh, for those who might be wondering, like Sherry's story is previously documented. So if you haven't heard that, you can hear the details of that in the interview that I I conducted with her. So I'm I'm curious about a couple things. Then, if we go back kind of through your investigative career, you you get involved in investigating like church abuse and institutional abuse. And you mentioned I think the Catholic Church and the Boy Scouts. Maybe those mm-hmm. are the two biggest organizations that you found yourself um, investigating. When you start digging into these institutions, I imagine there's kind of a maybe a pattern that emerges that you start to see. And we, we look at maybe like how does a structure or a hierarchy foster like the growth or is it a perpetrator was already going to be one and they make use of the institution? Or is there a mixture of like an institution can, can make a perpetrator or a perpetrator uses an institution? How does that sort well, I of think match? Perpetrators, I think perpetrators use institutions. Uh, the Boy Scouts is obviously a safe haven for pedophiles. Yeah. Uh, they made it very easy for pedophiles to be in their ranks. They pretended they didn't, but they did. Mm-hmm. And same with the Catholic Church. It became a very safe haven for, for pedophiles. Mm-hmm. And so why, has this church. I, I guess, you're right. And and I think, why, why is that? So when an organization is like stated to be like we are working towards the greater good. So the Boy Scouts, you know, they're equipping like boys, helping them to maybe grow into like productive young men, the life skills that you can use, like some really cool things, whether it's like, hey, wilderness survival or things. Like there's a lot of good that an organization like that can do. Why is it in your estimation, and uh, you know, I don't suppose any of us have the exact answers, but you have quite a bit more experience than the average person, that an organization, when allegations would start to rise, would say, we don't want this to be, become public we want to like it's more important to hide this away than to protect and stand up for a victim well you're protecting the image of the institution Mm -hmm. because if the image of the institution is damaged that means membership numbers Mm -hmm. which equates to money right yeah in those institutions for sure and maybe right. in this one too. I don't know. <laughs> it's sometimes it's hard to know because the the money yeah. is is quite a yeah quite a secretive thing, and not, yeah. not necessarily in a good way. Now, I was curious about this other thing. Uh, you you mentioned you kind of you professed a couple times before you, you left mm-hmm. for good. Were you were you professing at the time that you were involved, like in, in investigating any of these other institutions for for, no. for sexual abuse? Okay, no, so. Pardon me, that that came after the fact. Correct. Right. And so when, and so this, this Sherry story came across your desk and, and you looked at it and you said, there's no institutions to, there really isn't going to be a case here. And that was, I think, probably just a realistic assessment. So within the two by two fellowship, the money is this nebulous thing. Like it's not, there isn't one central hierarchy. There isn't one central account. There isn't like, you know, there's a series of accounts that are maybe loosely connected, but it's really tough to pin down. And people have even tried to figure out, like, you know, how much money exists within the institution as a whole and where does it hang out and reside? I mean, sure, we could probably guess that, like, some of the bigger states like California and maybe New York would have, like, bigger bank accounts with more money. But it it, it is this really tricky thing. And I, I think this is a really helpful thing for people to understand because some people will look at, let's say, the work that you're doing and go, like, why isn't more happening? Why aren't these being, you know, brought to justice and, and you know, being prosecuted and so on and so forth? 
What is it about this type of work that makes it so difficult to investigate and even more so to prosecute? Well, child sex abuse cases are extremely difficult to prosecute. Extremely difficult. Mm -hmm. So you've got the child's word, basically, unless you've got evidence, physical mm -hmm. evidence, they're extremely difficult to prosecute. So, so you as have far the, as prosecution, limited window of time. Yeah. Yes. And then also most sex, most child sex abuse survivors do not come forward until they're adults and older mm -hmm. adults at that. So very rarely are child sex abusers caught in the act or, you know, around the time of the abuse. Mm -hmm. um, or, I mean, and it's, it's very, very common for these cases to be covered up even in families. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so, but yeah, children are afraid to tell their parents or so much shame that victims think it's their fault. And so they don't tell even, I, I, I can't even tell you how many cases I've worked on where, uh, law enforcement, parents, all sorts of people involved have asked children if they were harmed and the child says, no, no, nothing Nothing happened to me. And then years later, they're telling the story, right? I, and they felt mm -hmm, terrible mm -hmm. that they lied. Like, oh, I missed my opportunity to tell the truth, but they just couldn't. Because mm -hmm. you know somebody's going to get in trouble. Right. Kids aren't stupid, right? They know somebody's yep. going to get in trouble. Yeah. And, and, and that's the hard part is when we think about like a perpetrator of, of abuse, and, and I imagine there's, we could say like there's a spectrum of sort of personality types that would, would fall in the category of perpetrator, but they often don't fall into the stereotype. So for example, I grew up in the eighties and the stereotype was like the white van with candy at the playground or at the school with like a dirty mustache or things like that. Now in reality, so I was approached by a predator once when I was five years old. Now nothing happened to me. <laughs> I'm not making this one up, but so my brother who's a year older than I and I, were in Vancouver, uh, maybe like Burnaby. My dad had a business down there. He was a, an exterminator. And so we had just, we're literally out in front of the storefront. Like he was sitting at his desk and he could have looked out the window and seen us. And we were just in the back of his truck. So we had a pickup truck with a canopy and we were kind of playing in the back there, five years old, six years old. And like I said, my dad could just look out at the desk and see us there. And this old man walked up and you would have just thought this was somebody's grandpa. And he said to us, um, do you boys like cookies? And we're like, mm, yeah, I guess. But uh, then he then he made this remark. He said, do you boys ever get boners? Now, we had no idea what a boner was. That meant nothing to us. But something like twigged in our head. And clearly, I can remember this like clear as day. Like he had like this like tweed sort of jacket on. And I remember like looking at my brother and somehow even five five and six years old, we went, uh Oh, like something doesn't feel quite right about this interaction. Cause it was like the tailgate was shut, but like the canopy door was kind of open mm -hmm. and he was kind of leaning on the, on, on the tailgate, like talking to us. And, and that, now I don't think he would have like actually snatched us, but I think he was trying to lure us somewhere. And so we actually like said, Hey, we have to go. My dad's right there. And, and so he kind of wandered off, but we, we got out and actually like ran around the back of the building and went in the back door because we didn't want him to see where we went in something in our five and six year old brains yeah. figured out something wasn't right about this situation. And it's like, yep. it can be, it can be that, that easy in a sense. Right in front of your dad, so, your dad was right there. Could look out the window, right. 
right? I mean, even in these cases that we're working on right now with the church cases, there are people that have been abused where adults are around the corner in the other room. Yeah. And, and it's the, the, the fear that that they're like terrified into silence while this is happening. Mm -hmm. Now there's a term there's a term that gets thrown around uh, maybe a lot. And I think there's maybe a growing awareness of it. The term is grooming and grooming behavior. And, but I still think there's probably a lot of misunderstanding around that. How would, how would you describe like what grooming behavior is and how does that play into a perpetrator being able to commit the sexual assault or more, more often like child sexual assault or abuse? Well, first they groom the, community, the adults, a lot, most Mm -hmm. of the time, the parents of the child uh, that they want to abuse. So the parents think this person's great, right? They're they're in their house for dinners. I mean, obviously the workers are staying in your house if it's a worker perpetrator, Mm -hmm. but um, yeah, they have them for dinner. They become friends and, and then they're in. And Mm -hmm. so that's one aspect. They're usually not all perpetrators are, are, super charismatic, but, but some are very charismatic and they, they groom the entire community into thinking they're this great person. And so when it comes out, it's just unbelievable to people, right? Then they don't want to believe it. Couldn't be. How how could that be true? Yeah. Like we have this picture in our mind. This is this wonderful person. So when we think in it workers, and for those who aren't a part of this fellowship workers, a reference to um, a minister, essentially an itinerant minister of the gospel within this fellowship. And by itinerant, meaning that they come and they stay in the homes of members of the congregation and they might stay for a few nights. And, you know, I remember as a kid, like when a worker would come to visit, like it was actually pretty exciting. Now, to be fair, I don't remember us getting like a lot of worker visits and it could be because we did, maybe because we had a young family, but maybe because we weren't so like wealthy and and sort of upper class and maybe didn't have the most comfortable digs and things like that. And so uh, maybe maybe there wasn't, uh, it wasn't seen as, uh, as nice as maybe other other folks who might have your house and more comfortable beds or, or, or things like that. But it was seen as a big deal. Like the workers are coming to visit. And, you know, interesting, my parents, like they always said, like, we were careful around, like we, we kind of knew we had to keep an eye out. And I remember thinking to myself, like, hmm. why didn't you say something back then? If you, if you like, like they, they knew, for example, if we went to convention, we had to keep a very close eye on you. And I was like, so in the 1980s, pre-internet, you knew you had some sort of sense that you had to be very, very careful and you had to keep close eye on us. Where did that come from and why? And why did nobody want to talk about it? And the excuse that's often put forward is, well, nobody in society talked about it back then. You know, and this goes back to almost this idea of protecting image or image of institution or family. Yes. So have you talked to your parents about that? Uh, probably a little bit more so now as, as adult. Yes. Um, I'd be super and, curious and, to know why they back then. What did they hear that made them be uh, yeah. hyper vigilant at meeting, I, I at convention? Right, right. <laughs> I think it, it, it would have been like the whispers because a lot of this took place in sort of whispered conversations. Ooh, right. I heard that so and so. I heard that that this thing happened or so on. So as mm-hmm. as you like start to investigate th- this sort of stuff um, within this fellowship. Uh, so was it about 20, uh, like 2022 or 2023, like when you really started investigating in earnest, this fellowship in particular? Uh, October of last year is when yeah. I really started looking at Sherry's case. And and honestly, back in 2010, when I had to tell those lawyers there was no way forward, that really bothered me. 
That really right. did. I, I just thought, you know, this really is a church. This is an organized church. There's no reason yeah. in my mind why it shouldn't be registered with the government and and right. have church insurance like every other church. So that did bother me a lot. Um, and then this year, I mean, since then, I've worked on so many church cases. And so uh, it, it bothers me even more now. Now we know so many people have been harmed. And there's just mm-hmm. no recourse uh, and there's, there's, we're struggling to hold people accountable. Yeah. So. Okay. So, so this is, this is something that's really, uh, again, it goes back to the very challenging nature of investigating this. So w- when you as a highly experienced investigator with like multiple decades in this investigating and, you know, be, being able to bring perpetrators to justice and whatnot, you've mentioned that like, this is a really, really difficult thing to do because I know there are people who would look at the work that you're doing. And again, I, I, I say like, there's no Amazon prime for results. Um, like this process is a really, really challenging one. And, and even then to get somebody held accountable, what are some of the factors that make it so difficult for someone to be held to account or to find like some kind of recourse in particular with this fellowship? Well, you can't get civil recourse because there's nobody to sue. There's no institution to right. sue. Um, if you're uh, harmed on a convention grounds or in somebody's home, you can sue a property owner. Uh, almost mm-hmm. every attorney we talked to asked, Sherry, were you were you harmed on one of these convention grounds? Because we can sue them. Uh, but but she wasn't harmed on any convention grounds. So uh, there's no institution to sue. So no path forward with a civil suit. Criminally, mm-hmm. um, so many of these cases are outside the statute of limitations. Um, okay. and, and the ones that are under statute limitations. So I'll give you an example. There's a rape case in the church, a uh, police report was filed. Lots of witness interviews were done by law enforcement. There were other people that had been assaulted by this worker that, that gave witness testimony to law enforcement. So they had quite a bit in this file. Lost my AirPod. Hold on. That's okay. This, this is. Um, the joys of, of modern technology. <laughs> so we, we do this yeah. in real life. <laughs> Fully right out. So, uh, lots of witness, so, witness testimony. Lots of yep, lots interviews. of witness testimony. And the uh, the prosecutor did not want to move forward without another actual rape victim. And the reason for that is prosecutors do not like to try cases that they are not positive they can win. And a lot of times that's for political reasons. So they don't want to try cases they're going to lose. Right. Mm-hmm. And if they, and if there's any question in their mind, they don't want to move forward with the case. So they want another victim as could I call it like an insurance policy. So that in the event that one victim is deemed to have unreliable testimony, that they would have another one to kind of back that up or it's, solidify their case or. It's power in numbers. It's, yeah. It's okay. power and numbers. Yep. So would this then speak to, and, and I mean, it's, it's much easier said than done, but speak to the importance of those who are in the place where they can do this to speak up and to come forward and to, to make a report and to say something, because, you know, I think many victims feel like I was the only one. Oh, almost always. Yeah. Almost always. So as you know, 
and and then in twenty March of twenty twenty three, the Dean Brewer floodgates opened. So that that was the case where uh, a high ranking minister in this fellowship after he'd passed away. It was about nine months after he passed away. It was all of a sudden it became public knowledge, maybe almost by accident, that he had been a serial sexual predator and like really like brutally so. I actually had one question. You may not be able to answer this. I'll press it with that. But it really feels like there's a real lid on that case. Like we know virtually nothing other than he had illicit materials on his laptop and cell phone. Like that's as far as it goes. And that he had maybe conducted sexual assault. But it seems like there's a really tight lid on this. Now, is there, and a lot of people are wondering about it, is there a legal reason for this? Or is this like an institutional control issue from your estimation? Oh, I think that's an institutional control issue. Okay. As in, it would be possible for... Now, and I, I guess what we're also trying to reckon with is, like, we, we want we definitely want to protect victims. And, and we want to, like, we, we never want, like, a victim's name to come forward without their permission or before they're ready for their story to be made, made public. I think this is another uh, confounding factor is protecting the identity of victims where where necessary and allowing the victim to kind of take the lead or the victim survivor to take the lead in in bringing this this forward um so in in the case of of Dean Brewer though like there's this cloud of mystery this black box kind of surrounding this um when when kind of that news broke i believe that you and Sherry and Lauren and your your basically your advocates team or what became your ad, maybe you weren't yet advocates i'm not sure um but you were instrumental in a lot of this information in becoming public and, and it was your pressure that kind of brought this information to light. Um, the thing that we're still wrestling with is why is like so little like publicly known and is there any way to get more information? And is there is there any value in that, I guess? So sometimes people want to know for like sensationalistic reasons or for gossip reasons to have something to talk about. But um I think the Dean Brewer case, there's some really important things here that, that like the, you know, how he went and conducted his things, like what he did, what, because I imagine his pattern of behavior was not isolated to him as an individual, that there are other perpetrators who've in, in positions like his, who've carried out similar patterns of abuse. And I don't know if you found that in your investigations. Yes. Um, and and I, over time, that will come out. I mean, these these we're only five or six months in. Uh, th th these cases take years to uncover mm -hmm. all the information. And, and so information will keep coming out for years. I do think people have a right to know about uh, perpetrators with allegations that have been vetted because it's public safety. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. that's how I feel about it. I think most people would agree. Right. So what what would be maybe the, if I could say like the legal justification, because this is what we're really wrestling with as well. You know, there seems to be a lot of reticence to make somebody with allegations make that name public because allegations are not the same as a criminal conviction. But as you've identified, a criminal conviction is really, really hard to come by like exceptionally low percentage of success, which is again, why so many prosecutors, as you've said, are really hasn't to take this on. So, the, and I'm going to guess that the hesitation in bringing a name forward with allegations attached to it is, <coughs> pardon me, like smearing somebody's reputation unjustly. But the reality is, and I think 
you could probably comment on this from your experience doing investigations that if like two or more people come forward, like independently with allegations against somebody, they probably have a, a pile of victims. What have you observed when allegations start to come forward and the average perpetrator, maybe the second question kind of would be like, what's the scale or scope of the average perpetrator's abuse? I don't have the data on that, but uh, it's large. I think the average for uh, perps is over a hundred victims in their lifetime. There there are some pretty big numbers out there. Depends on the perp, right? Mm -hmm, But mm -hmm. yeah, when you, I mean, there was a worker that used to be in Mexico and, and we knew right away within a few people coming forward that this guy's numbers would be huge. And mm-hmm. there are still people coming forward. And and I think his victim count is probably in the hundreds. Mm-hmm. Cause you'll never know. Oof. I always say add a zero to what you know, and that's the least. Um, so if you have right. five people have come forward, add a zero to that. And that's minimum. Um, that that's just right. my own. That's what I use. Uh, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's not good. I mean, this is really bad. I, I had yeah. no idea. You know, we Sherry and Lauren were already trying to work when we were working on their cases. They they were calling overseers. Sherry had started working in, back in 2010 with workers to yeah. get uh, child sex abuse policies and procedures. She wanted to talk about the subject, like what are you going mm-hmm. to do about these cases, and and how are you going to handle them properly and protect your community? And nobody was interested in talking with her. And then even last year. They're, they're trying to talk to overseers and they're trying to call people. People aren't calling them back. Overseers are not calling them back. And the ones that did call them back, t- completely disinterested. I was in on some of those phone calls, mm-hmm, completely mm-hmm. disinterested. They didn't know who they should talk to about child sex abuse policies. And so um, this the day that Dean Brewer letter came out, actually, Ed Alexander read it to us on the phone. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I said, this is a gift. This is a gift because mm-hmm. they are, they've refused to listen and um, now they're going to have to listen. They, this is a major scandal they have on their hands and they're going to have to listen. And now we've learned that over the years, and it seems like a new story crops up on the internet every day about some poor yeah. family that has worked tirelessly with the workers around issues of child sex abuse. And it's just fallen on deaf ears, right? It's so sad. Um, and ultimately some of those families were excommunicated because they wouldn't shut up. Right. Yeah. That's, that's a part of it, right? There's this hierarchy that is trying to protect themselves and the image of the institution versus doing the right thing. And so I think Mm -hmm. myself, like as a Christian, I have a really hard time with this because I would think, okay, these ministers believe that they are called to God to go and minister the gospel, to become this itinerant minister. Okay. So you believe that you're called by God to do this. Well, some of them probably don't really. Some, like, As you said, sometimes perpetrators will just take advantage of institutions to, to carry out their crimes. But so in my head, I think, okay, if you believe you are called to minister the gospel and essentially be an ambassador of, of Christianity, so to speak, and to follow the tenets of Christianity, how could you in good conscience cover any of this up? How could you in good conscience not fight tooth and nail to bring every perpetrator to justice? Why is that so hard? for a Christian to do? 
It's a good question. I don't know. It's mind boggling, isn't it? It's just mind boggling. And then now that it's been exposed, why are they fighting so hard to keep them in meetings? Why? That's, so that's, that's the other part of it that I really don't understand because you've shared and, and maybe you, you don't have the exact data, but it really seems like there's like overseers, there's senior brother workers. There are some younger brothers and there are some sister workers or female ministers. Yes, but predominantly like men and men in positions of authority. And then this other part that really baffles me is, and you've probably seen this where someone has allegations as a worker and they're kicked out of the work, but then they're made an elder. And I wonder if this is made, if this is like a cover-up move, we're going to say that, Hey, they, they just, Hey, they, they couldn't keep going in the ministry. That was just too much for them, but we still revere them again, protecting the image. So we're going to put them in this position of again, reverence and authority as an elder, that is a leader of the weekly Sunday worship in a home. And so you, you literally take someone who was already an abuser or has many allegations against them, and, and now you put them in another position of authority and reverence, which then actually further enables the abuse to continue. Have you seen like a, am I imagining it? Or is there like a pattern of like perpetrators coming out of the ministry and then being made, being put in these other positions of authority as like elders and deacons and so on? Jonathan, <laughs> there are so many of those stories that our inside joke is, oh, you're a perpetrator? Would you like a Sunday morning meeting, a Wednesday night meeting, or a union meeting? I'm not kidding, because there are so many yeah. perpetrators that had known allegations that are then made an elder of a meeting. It's mind-boggling. Right. And they no known allegations. They were known to the workers that gave them the meeting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there really seems to be this culture of covering up and protecting and, and so on. Now and promoting. I, and I, promoting. Yeah, promoting. Yeah. Now I, I want to maybe take a bit of a dive and again I'm putting up sort of a disclaimer on this and 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 the only answer what you can. But I think sometimes we hear these terms like abuse and grooming and things like that, and we don't really fully understand what we're actually talking about. And it's like if we don't really understand the truly graphic nature of what people have experienced. Sometimes it's hard for us to empathize with the victim. So somebody might just think like, Oh, you were a kid. It happened a long time ago. You just kind of forget about it. Like wh what sort of things are we like, what kinds of, like, has there been any stories that have actually shocked you? Maybe not because you've been investigating this or have there been stories that have shocked you? And you know, have there been stories that like really like what upset you kind of the most without revealing like obviously identifiable details of like what you've uncovered here? Well, so, okay, let's talk about the, the graphics of it. Um, these pedophiles are sexually attracted to children, okay? Mm -hmm. They are sexually attracted to children. So the abuse is horrific. Um, mm -hmm. the, these, are, these are children. Yeah, and, and some as young as like toddlers. Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So, and, and, uh, I mean, I hope you have some survivors on here. Uh, I, I know you've already talked to Sherry, but, but it's a lifetime of recovery for these folks. Mm -hmm. Right. So you, so you think about that in comparison to the perp 
who's protected and promoted is just so wrong on every level. Yeah. Like it, it just like, Oh, like it, it makes me feel angsty thinking about it, that this individual who has committed, like I, I'm a father of a toddler who your microphone probably isn't picking up, but I can hear him thumping around upstairs. And I, I love this boy beyond life itself. Like he is, he is just so incredible. The thought of somebody hurting him, I'm a Christian and it would bring me very close to wanting to commit murder. Like it would probably bring me to the verge of mm -hmm. that. That's how I feel mm -hmm. about somebody harming my child. Somebody who can hear about a child being harmed and not feel that protective instinct. Like, I know I, I can't imagine they're actually like, Oh, how could you call yourself? How could you say you're even being led by the spirit of God and you cannot be like enraged by somebody hurting a child. That's the part that I'm wrestling with. Yeah, it's really hard. It's really hard to understand. And and the workers are so revered. Um, we have stories about, of course, I mean, we have lots of these stories where parents told the workers and the workers say, don't tell, don't go to law enforcement. We're going to, we'll handle this. We have a story of, of a little girl she actually told her parents uh, at the time it happened i think she was six or seven and um so in her little she told her little sister little sister uh told the parents and maybe it was her older sister but anyhow told the parents parents told the worker worker said don't report it to law enforcement we got to keep this quiet i'll move him i'll move him right away out of the area move the worker and then dad develops a drinking problem because dad, dad, you know, well, now, dad now had the same cope. reaction like, you. Yeah. Somebody did this to my little girl and I didn't protect my child. Yeah. What could I, and, and this is what I feel as a parent. Now you can see the emotions starting to come up. This is what I feel as a parent. If I am yeah. not informed, how can I protect my children? And I know that I cannot protect them from everything. It, it would be impossible to helicopter my child 24 hours a day, every day for the rest of his life. But I want to do everything I can to not put my child in a position to have that happen to him. And my second mm -hmm. one as well, by the way, not just the first one. Right, right. And so yeah. this idea of moving him as though somehow that's going to change the situation, you're literally giving him access to fresh victims. Yeah. And you've probably and seen did. this pattern as yeah. well, where oh, yeah. so a, a perpetrator gets moved and moved and moved and moved and never dealt with. Is there, so then is there any way to like go after them criminally for that kind of behavior where you take a minister and, and move them somewhere else? And if you knew that they had these allegations and put them, put other victims in harm's way, is there any kind of criminal responsibility for that? There can be. Yes. But I imagine that's probably a tricky one as well to try to prove like that somebody knew and, and so on. Like, and, and again, I think, and part of, part of the reason I'm asking this is because I imagine again, people, who maybe aren't as steep in this as, as fight as I am. Like I, I've been pretty steep in this fight. Um, some who are maybe a little bit more on the sidelines for whatever reason or circumstance, maybe aren't aware. Like it's really like, again, this stuff is really tricky to bring out in the court of law because we do have an innocent mm -hmm. until proven guilty, which I think is a necessary legal standard at this, you know, but at the same time, like this is really, really hard stuff. So I guess, you know, as, as we start to, as we kind of bring this to a close and I really thank you for like your time and for sharing and what you, the work that you continue to do, I want to know a little bit more about what advocates is doing. So we're talking about sort of the investigation, that sort of stuff. And I think it's really important and things you've seen uncovered.
But the other side of the work that you and Sherry and Lauren are doing with advocates to support victims, for me, as a member of this fellowship, I sit here and think my own damn fellowship would rather support victim, uh, sorry, perpetrators than victims. They would rather promote them and shuffle them than care for the wounded. And here you are, you're not even a part of this fellowship. Uh, well, you're connected to it, but I mean, you choose not to be a part of an active participant within this fellowship. And I think, what? why is it that, that somebody outside of this fellowship has to be the one to make this effort? And, and why, why do you care so much to keep fighting? And then we'll talk a bit more about what you do with advocates. Well, I mean, I, I would have walked away by now, except for the survivors. Uh, and I mean, we heard from some more this morning uh, that are that are so grateful. So you don't want to quit. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, really, we're we're trying to expose the perpetrators, which. Mm -hmm. A lot of workers have known who they are for a very long time, but now everybody else gets to know about them. So expose these perpetrators, hold the people accountable who have covered for them, uh, whatever mm -hmm. that looks like, and uh, then take care of the survivors. And I really wish, I mean, so far, I think Fund Recovery has a little over 100,000 in it now. You know, that's like four or five inpatient stays for a survivor. And we've got... Mm -hmm we're going to have thousands of survivors that need a lifetime of therapy. We've got people in serious crisis right now. Um, and so I wish I, I saw a friend this weekend at a wedding who has nothing to do with this church and I stuff's been popping up on my Facebook evidently. And she said, I, I saw what you're doing and, and this case you're working on. And I looked at your website and wow, this is, this is something else. And I said, oh yeah, that's the church I grew up in. And I said, we're just trying to uh, expose the perps and help survivors. And she said, yeah, I donated. Mm -hmm. Blew my mind. Cause here's a person that's not, she's just a friend of mine. Right. Uh, and there's nothing about the church and she donated. has a heart for the victims. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. I, I wish the people inside the church, inside the community cared as much. I really do. And, and I wish, I mean, we're learning that there's mm. massive funds, right? I mean, yeah. I don't I think, think that's a secret. Uh, and I think there's that a lot I, of money. I, I put forward a radical suggestion. Of course it never got taken up and I don't imagine it ever will. I was like, imagine just canceling conventions. So that's the annual Christian conventions that take place. And there's, I don't know, maybe 80 of them that take place in, in North America, right? And I think, imagine just canceling them all for one year and all the money that was going to go into those conventions being put into a victim fund and then have it properly administrated through a legal, like third party to and so on to make sure it's done properly or whatever, you know, but imagine what, what we could do just with that from one year, because we literally have of decades and decades of victims. So you're, let's say the oldest case that comes across your desk, how far back are we talking here? The old, well, we're learning of really historical ones where both parties are dead, but the oldest mm -hmm. one we know of right now, uh, where the victim is still living, she's 95 years old and she was abused when she was five. Oh man. So we're going back mm -hmm. to like the 1930s kind of thing. So this is, this is something that has mm -hmm. been, and like, I don't know if endemic is the right word, but anyways, I'll 
I'll use it <laughs> inside yeah. this fellowship for yeah. decades and decades, almost since its inception in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, since it really like took on a, a, a significant notable public life because now the, the weird thing is this used to be a very public institution where like they literally had tents and big old signs who were like, come listen to the gospel. And, and somehow somewhere it kind of morphed into this secretive institution where it was like cover up, protect the image. And I can only imagine yeah. that money plays a role in that, but what would your impression be as to why it sort of morphed into this secretive institution? I, I don't know. I thought a lot about that because when I was a kid, I think us kids even went around and handed out little invitations to gospel meetings that were printed yeah. on little like cardstock, uh, index card size paper. I uh, would go not, and the workers certainly did that. They were out yeah. knocking on doors, yeah. inviting people to meetings. Uh, ads ran in the newspaper, yeah. inviting people to meetings. I, I don't know if they still do that anywhere, but um, it, it seems like the yeah. outreach slowed down a lot. I don't know. And now with the internet, you could have so much more, such bigger outreach. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, I, I think I remember so, as a kid, like kind of, I, I felt awkward. So where, where we grew up, um, we lived across the, in a small town across the main grocery store and the Sunday morning meeting was up the road. The Wednesday meeting was up the road and the union meeting was up the road, literally like three minutes walk away and so, of course, even in wintertime, we're walking up there. We might wear winter clothes. But like, so every Sunday and all my friends would see me walking up to church and, and I'd be like <laughs> trying to hide and slink around like, oh, someone's watching me do this. It's it's ironic that now, like, I'm so public about this that I have no, pro like, I'm not ashamed to be a Christian, but I am like, I, f I feel ashamed of maybe not realizing the scope and scale of this, of what this, what has taken place under the banner of this fellowship. And that, that I'm only really like, it's really only been since March of 2023 that the real, and even then when it first came out, like I even felt some protective instincts around it until I started to have the conversations and, and my mind was suddenly open and I realized, whoa, there is so much more in play here. And it literally took like the, the work that you folks are doing with advocates, like, and, and there's a few other groups that have done this, but like just to mm -hmm. blow the floodgates open, but there's still some people that want to bury their head in the sand and pretend that this isn't happening. And, and pretend yeah. that everything is and, sort of ideal. Hey, look, Wings has been around for, I don't know how long. I mean, they've been right. trying to expose this stuff for a really, really long time. Right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and here's the thing, Jonathan, I've thought a lot about this. The, the longer, leadership takes to deal with this, the more it damages the church. Mm -hmm. If anybody yeah. Google the church now, you know, uh, if they're talking to somebody about meetings and then you kind of figure out, Oh, two by two or whatever, and you do any Googling, what a nightmare, what a right. nightmare. Yep. So the, the longer they take to get this crap cleaned up, the more it's going to damage the church. That's not mm -hmm. my doing. That's not right. my doing. That's leadership. Yeah dragging their feet, refusing to kick pedophiles out. Uh, so it's, it's disheartening. It's, it's mind boggling. I yeah. don't get it. So one, one last thing, you know, you mentioned the work of advocates um, and, and I, and I love that you are supporting victims, but there's this huge need. Actually, there's two more things I want to touch on. <laughs> um, one being um, this idea of exposing perps. There's, I know there's been reticence because there's this fear of false allegations. And we, I think the stats are something like less than 7% of allegations are, are false. And when a child is involved, it's almost zero. 
I'm not sure if you can comment on, on the accuracy of those stats. So exposing perps, like the likelihood of them, like not being guilty is pretty small. I would think. It is. Yep. Yeah. And so the other part of it is when you as advocates put a perpetrator's name forward, I think it's pretty safe to say that you have done your due diligence as a private investigator and a professional to ensure that this is not just some willy-nilly sort of one person made a random phone call to slander somebody's name. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. The ones I've put out there so far are ones I'm 100% sure on or 99.9, mm -hmm. as sure as you can be, right? I, I'm not yeah. moving forward uh, unless I'm uh, absolutely sure. And uh, there's lots that that I'm sitting on that are not out there yet because I need to gather a little bit more information. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yes, by the time a name is out there, uh, I mean, I've seen some names out there that I haven't vetted, so I can't speak to those. Uh, I'll be upfront mm -hmm. mm -hmm. about that. But um, the, the any name that I'm putting out there, I'm confident in moving forward. And so this work is really like a non nonprofit work. And normally, um, I mean, th th there's a way that you're compensated for the work that you're doing, but as, as you're doing this work here uh, under the banner of advocates, this investigative work, and there really isn't an institution to pursue in civil court for financial recourse. How are you and the rest of the advocates team su supported for all the like hours and hours and hours of work that you've put in and for those who are listening who want to support all of this work that you're putting in, how can they support you? Well, we did set up a 501c3, Advocates for the Truth, a nonprofit. And we're using, people are donating to those funds. And they they tell us, you specify in an email if you want some to go to our overhead and the rest to go to victims. So right now we're paying our hard costs. We have a full-time employee. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but we're not getting paid for our time, but I've got a lot of database costs and court record costs and all that kind of thing. So we have actual hard costs, um, mm -hmm. with lawyer, accountant, all sorts of things like that right now. But, uh, but Jonathan, there's never going to be enough money to pay for our services until we have enough money to care for survivors. And out of that advocates for the truth fund, we're using, uh, besides our hard costs, we're paying for international survivor therapy um, right mm -hmm. now. We've mm -hmm. already started that. So, uh, we're, I, I mean, we we need to raise a lot of money for survivors before we do anything else. That's how I feel about it. Yeah. I, yeah. I want the survivors to be taken care of. And that's going to take a lot. Honestly, I wish they'd all get a lump sum. And then they do right. with that what they will. We get out of the therapy business and right and like wouldn't that be amazing? That, that would. So yeah, I, and maybe you can't speak to an exact number here, but I, I I'm guessing we're probably talking in the millions, if not tens of millions, because of how sure. many victims there are. Yes. So and and the one thing that advocates has been that this fellowship has not been is financially transparent. Correct. So. If anyone is wondering, you know, about how this money is used, they can, you, you have, because you're a registered 501C, you can say you, you've documented, this is how your money is being used. So nobody wonders like if you're, you know, well, this isn't happening, but like taking first, first class flights, you know, across the country to dine at a fancy restaurant or something on the dime of 
money that has been donated by people. And here we in this fellowship think about how we have donated to support this itinerant ministry and see how our money has been used in many, many illegitimate ways that are really frustrating, that the lack of transparency is covered up. And so I'm just so grateful that, that you you and, and, and your advocates team are being absolutely transparent about the work that you're doing. And the fact that you've given like so much of your time to this and the fact that you're willing to to do this, I don't know if pro bono is the right term, but I mean, essentially, like you got bills to pay. You have people to, you have a life, you have expenses. And, and yet here you are continuing to fight. And it's like, I, I don't know, I, I can't say enough to like, I, I don't know, I, I wish I could do more to support all of the amazing work that you, that you folks are doing. It's partly why I have this project going is because I'm trying to continue to raise awareness of, of the work that the, the advocate team is doing, because at the heart of all of this, we want survivors to be taken care of because it is the right thing to do. Absolutely. And, and I think, I don't know who you're planning on interviewing, but if, if I don't we know yet either, that'll be fun to find out. If we could educate people on how child sex abuse impacts literally every facet of a survivor's life for their entire life, and and what that means, lost wages, health, therapy bills, oh, relationships. That's a huge one honestly. Um, and, and, uh, in my, uh, other cases, I mean, a lot of times our clients have been incarcerated, right? I mean, they've been in a lot of trouble because they just, their life goes off the rails. So if we could educate, uh, people on that aspect of child sex abuse and what it really means to be a survivor, maybe people would be more interested in donating. I don't know. Um, but yeah, if we could take care of the survivors, that's number one. I think I, I just want to make one more comment before I ask you for some words of wisdom to close out the episode really, or maybe words of encouragement, but a perpetrator knows how to behave in the system. And this goes back to grooming behavior. A perpetrator knows how to play by the rules in front of the right people to build up the facade of trust so that when the allegations come out, it is so hard to believe they're true. On the other hand, what you have been describing here, a victim's life. So I've been a victim of trauma, not, not in this fellowship, but I've been a victim of trauma and PTSD. I know how it has affected my life every day since that has taken place. So we look at a, a victim and we look at this fellowship where we focus so much on how it appears like how we wear our tie to meeting or the words we speak and all of this. And then along comes someone who's been victimized and traumatized and their brain has been deeply affected. Their life has been entirely in, in some ways ruined and they don't behave like a good Christian might look. They behave like a deeply troubled, wounded person. And, you know, Jesus went and talked to those people. He wasn't afraid to, he literally went and talked to a demon possessed guy in a graveyard who <laughs> had, you know, and, and here we're, we we shun those people and and it, it bothers me. I'm kind of almost getting my soapbox here. But what I'm trying to say is a victim doesn't behave the way that we might expect a form focused, you know, fellowship to look like. That doesn't mean they're not worthy of our help. If anything, it means they badly need our help even more. And so I, I hope, too, that, that there are some courageous victims who I could speak to and share their story and amplify their story as well. Um, that's what we hope to do with this docu series that I'm creating. I really don't know how many episodes it's going to be. I don't know how long this is going to go for, 
But I'm so grateful for the work that you do and for your willingness to come on and share about what it is that you do as well. So I'd just like to close out just with some words of encouragement. If you could encourage anybody who's trying to move forward with this fight or any victims, uh, what would you say to them? Well, I guess if we could just get everybody on board to support victims. I mean, that's huge for victims. Victims are so grateful for this exposure right now, honestly, across mm -hmm. all these different uh, platforms, right? Our Facebook page, other Facebook pages. Um, they're super grateful for it. It's like they've been, you know, when I call uh, survivors sometimes on other cases, they, they literally say, I've been waiting my entire life for this call. And so yeah. I think that's what survivors in the church are like, right? I've waited my entire life for this to be exposed. And so if we can uh, just have the support of the exposure and then support for the survivors, because um, people are still saying things, um, you know, the posts will go up and, and I mean, people just don't think about what they say sometimes. Mm -hmm. And it's mm -hmm. like, oh, that what you just said right there is so hurtful for survivors. There was something that went up a couple days ago. Um, it was a post I did actually about a perp. And um, when the survivor heard what people were commenting, uh, she said, that's exactly why survivors are don't want to come forward. Mm -hmm. So if we could think before we speak mm -hmm. and uh, think about survivors. I've told some of the workers, if you uh, would approach things from a victim centric position, instead of a perp centric conviction uh, uh, position, it will guide everything you do. Mm -hmm. Right. Think about the survivors first and let that guide your next move. Yeah. It, it is so hard for a survivor to come forward. It is so difficult. They go through so much after they've already been through so much. And to support a perpetrator for fear of them suffering from a wounded reputation is beyond a ginormous slap in the face. It is it is the worst thing we could do. And so, yep. yeah, support survivors, support them in every way possible and do the right thing. Well, Cynthia, thank you again so much for being on today. It has really been a pleasure and I look forward to future conversations with you. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you so much for tuning into The Hidden Truth. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share this episode because that helps this podcast to reach and inspire more people. It is so important these stories are heard so that we continue to raise awareness and support victim survivors on their healing journey. For those who've been affected but haven't found your voice yet, I really hope these stories inspire you to keep moving forward on your healing journey. Thank you.